Hello everyone and welcome to Radio Ombudsman in Lockdown. And we have a very special guest today, all the way from Barcelona, where he's also in lockdown, Rafael Ribo, the Ombudsman of Catalonia. Rafael, you are very welcome indeed. Thank you very much for this opportunity. To those few people who don't know him, Rafael Ribo is a polymath. He's been many things in his long and distinguished career. He's been an academic, he's been a politician, and uh, now he's an ombudsman. And he has degrees from the University of Barcelona. He's also got a degree from a university in New York. And long ago, in 1963, he began his political activity as a member of the Faculty Senate for the Democratic Students' Union of the University of Barcelona. And he went on to be an outstanding contributor to uh, the Assembly of Intellectuals of Catalonia, eventually uh, moving into politics and becoming the General Secretary of the United Socialist Party of Catalonia. He served as an MP in the Catalan Parliament. He was also an MP in the Spanish Parliament. And he's had a, an influential and distinguished career, both in and outside the Ombudsman world. So, Rafael, we begin a tradition uh, with Radio Ombudsman of asking people just to talk a little bit about their, their early life, where you grew up. Uh, and something about your your family life as a child. I was born in an upper-middle-class family uh, during Franco dictatorship. I always say that I was born uh, bringing peace to the world because I was born the same day peace was signed in the, after World War II. I was very uh, lucky because I was born in a wealthy family. I didn't like anything, but I received a lot of democratic and Catalan values during this period with my parents and all my brothers. I am the youngest son of this family. And um, what kind of values were instilled in you during this upbringing? Look, I went through nine years of Jesuit school really? that would be at that time uh, high quality level of school in Catalonia and Spain and at the same time I was a member of a little bit clandestine uh, Boy Scouts organization I say a little bit clandestine because Franco had uh, his own uh, youth organization from the Jesuits, I got the values of responsibility, of a big effort to study anything, but also I got from Boy Scouts a collective sense of life and a meaning of uh, contemplating the social issues uh, from a community value. And I think I, I was very lucky to be able to balance both approaches, the leadership, individual, effort as Jesuits and St. Ignatius uh, were influencing me, but also the uh, learning daily of other people teaching you 
and uh, being worried about people that couldn't afford what I could afford myself. Yeah, I, I didn't know you were born on the on the day that peace broke out in in 1945. There's a famous book written by Salman Rushdie called Midnight's Children, where the hero of that novel was born on the day of Indian independence. And he's given special powers of know, knowing what people think before they say it. And I wonder whether uh, you got any special powers as a result of this. <laughs> My special powers are that I am surrounded always with very, very interesting and helping people uh, that without them, I couldn't have done anything in my life. Did you go to university after school? Yes. I went to two different faculties at the same time, to the law school in the morning and to the economics school in the afternoon, because uh, my deception was that I wanted to study political science. But during Franco period, you couldn't study political science except in Madrid, in a kind of school where you were taught of Franco's uh, thoughts. Then uh, hoping someday to go as I did abroad, I got my two degrees in law and in economics, and then I left to the United States, to the new school for social research for my master's and PhD preparation in political science, and also preparing my research and my future teaching in the university. So, did you campaign in any way against the Franco regime before you went to America? I went during the, I was during the university period in Barcelona, involved in the born in clandestine also manners, uh, union of students against the fascist union of students. I was elected in my first term in the university as a delegate from the students, and then I participate in the fight against the fascist union of the students. Most of our listeners will have been born well after Franco disappeared. Could you, could you just give us a flavor of what it was like to be in a clandestine organization? It was uh, another type of a school, another type of learning. We were fighting for. Uh, many people are asking us, you were fighting against. No, we were fighting for freedom. Imagine that my dream, for example, was to be able to vote. And I couldn't vote until I was 32 years old. That means that during all my student period, one of my goals was to get the right to vote in a democratic elections, or fighting for getting uh, legal unions, or fighting for values against the old Catholic conservative approach that Franco was protecting, putting enormous layers of society like women in a repression status. No? Yeah. So why did you go to America rather than anywhere else? Uh, at that time, for all social uh, uh, science students, America was like uh, a dream, like uh, um, front row of uh, uh, books, of uh, new publications, of new theories. Huh? Let's uh, think, for example, on uh, Kuhn, the uh, structures of new paradigms. No? Or in political science, what represented from Almond to Easton 
to all those authors that for us was really new matters. I could have been a student in the London School of Economics, where my father was a student a lot of years before. But I don't know why at the, at the long run, maybe for more uh, facilities for scholarships, I applied to an American university. Right. And um, do, do you look back on America favorably or, or not? I learned a lot of things in America. Yeah, U.S. is a fantastic country with a, a very rich grassroots social uh, movements. But of course, I wouldn't agree with what I could contemplate Barry Goldwater or even Richard Nixon or the Vietnam War. But I would say that I learned also a lot of democratic values when I participated with my fellows at the university in uh, peaceful demonstrations against the Vietnam War. So when did you come back from America? That was 1970, that okay. I got a proposal to be a professor at the University of Barcelona with a new team that was created for social and political science. Okay, now Franco was not yet gone by that time. Franco was still alive. And my life was a kind of double life. Uh, the legal life was as a teacher, uh, taking care of what words were you using in class. And my illegal life was in the underground movement, trying to build what we call, uh, you mentioned before, the Assembly of Intellectuals, or then the Assembly of Catalonia, uh, gathering all type of movements uh, with the same goal, getting democracy in Catalonia and in Spain. Okay, so you were, you were an academic when you came back, you had this underground life, and then in the 1980s you went into politics full-time. Yes, I went to politics full-time, not exactly because I maintained part of my day uh, for in teaching and even in researching and publishing books uh, from the academic arena. But uh, I, I got a main goal in uh, pushing political uh, movements in a very wide uh, sense for individual or collective freedoms. What I mean, individual meaning the human rights that are in the universal declarations, or I make collective freedoms in fighting for Catalan self-government. And it's interesting because your, I think your doctoral thesis was called The Concept of Political Culture. So that was directly relevant to what you did when you went back uh, to Barcelona. Yes, I learned a lot about uh, social anthropology or studies of national character. And I tried to apply this to uh, the different uh, organization of states where there is a diversity of subjects collective subjects and how they are respected. It's very different to contemplate the confederation in Switzerland or the uh, federation in Germany or even the respect from, for the Swedish-speaking people in Finland of what we got in Spain that was a regime with uniformization and trying to erase any type of difference. And diversity is a richness for any country. And that's what I'm trying to show in my thesis. So I think you were a, a member of parliament for about 21 years. That's a long time. 
I read a, a newspaper article in which they said about you that you were one of the few figures to survive 40 years in, in politics. So it is a long time. What was the secret of, of staying in the front line for so long? First of all, I wouldn't say I've been 40 years in the first line in politics. I would say that I had two very different periods, the MP period or the ombudsman period. Yeah. And those are two very different periods for understanding politics. And the secret is very easy. Uh, I think it's a, a very deep worrying of general interest in, as I said before, in both dimensions, individual and collective uh, human rights approach. Okay. So in, in this country, in the United Kingdom, it's not part of our tradition that politicians go on to become the ombudsman, as it is in many countries in Europe. What, what would you say is the main difference between being a politician and being an ombudsman? When you are a politician, even then you repeat many times that you are pushing for the general interest, you are doing that from a partisan approach. And thanks to partisan approach, we can enjoy democracy. That means very different parts that they should deal, they should negotiate, they should agree in solutions. None of them by its own has the truth. And that's what it means, political party, political for the whole, party for a part. As an ombudsman, you must always uh, underline the political approach in the sense of whole. You yeah. can never push anything as a partisanship solution. You must look for the whole solution. And that's the main difference in between both works. Okay. So... You were appointed, first elected to be Catalan Ombudsman in 2004. So you've been there a long time. You got reappointed in 2009, I think. What's your biggest achievement in that role? I was appointed in 2004, and then during my first mandate, they changed the laws for the self-government of Catalonia in a very deep way even with problems with the Constitutional Court suppressing parts of this law. And then all the different institutions had to be adapted to the new law that uh, meant that we got a second mandate for a longer period. I think that um, we could say that in this change, we saw the importance of being a useful institution, an institution being able to solve problems, not to talk about problems, to solve individual problems of people that if they were going to court to the judicial power, maybe in years, in a long, long process, they could get a solution. And a solution uh, very uh, related to what the law says. In the Ombudsman, you can study each case in an individual form, approach them in a faster way, trying to get the solution, uh, even from a psychological, but also from a legal point of view. And also, I would add that um, pushing this approach, we've got 
much more knowledge from the people that could knock our door. And we got a lot of new fields to work, as for example, private companies offering a service of general interest that now are also under our control, like telephone, like uh, electricity, like water, etc. Okay, I've, I've been to your office on a number of occasions, and uh, one of the things that strikes me about it is that you share premises with recovering drug addicts, and that sends out a very powerful signal to people that you are involved in solving problems, not just listening to them. Yeah, when they offered us a new building, because the old one was too small when we were growing, they offered a very nice building that was built by the Spanish Second Republic uh, almost 100 years ago. But they said, you have only one problem, that in the half basement, there is a drug addicts uh, facility. We are going to uh, transfer to another building. And I said, no, please. I want you to maintain this facility there in order to prevent any type of NIMBY approach. We can uh, establish a kind of cohabit, I mean, uh, co-living together, the ombudsman and the drug addict addict's, uh, facility. And it works. Yeah. Okay. I mean, if we could just look concretely, you, you're living through turbulent times, not just with corona, but the whole independence referendum question in Catalonia. And I know that as part of your responsibilities, you've visited those in jail for their participation in the referendum. How difficult is it to champion the human rights of Catalonians? Now it's quite difficult because I know that's a problem that uh, part of the international uh, arena don't understand or don't want to understand. But Catalonia in the last uh, five or six years saw a growing movement of demands for more self-government that were uh, answered from the Spanish government always with no, and even with no to the possibility of consulting citizens through vote uh, about which solution would prefer for the self-government problem. And at the longer term, when the referendum was held, even in illegal terms, uh, that it's not a penal fault in Spain to organize a referendum, but it's illegal. Uh, the leaders were uh, pre- uh, were detained and they were judged and they were condemned to more than 100 years sentence all them together. One of the condemned people, sentenced people, is my former general deputy, a person that was known in the international ombudsman family when he was accompanying me to the international meetings. A very well-known social scientist that now is in jail since two and a half half years ago. That's for me one of the biggest injustice I have ever seen in my life. And I would fight with all the treaties, with the UN human rights treaties, with the Code of Human Rights of Europe, with all the tools I can use in a democratic uh, path to get to fight for their freedom. Okay. 
I mean, the, the passion of that is, is clear to everyone listening. Some people have criticised you for being having an over-partisan involvement in the campaign for Catalonian independence. What do you say to that? There is not a single word, not a single statement in all our reports with thousands and thousands of pages in favor of Catalonia independence. Not a single argument. We never write about any partisanship debate, like could be if Catalonia should get independence or a federalist status or a regional status. We never come in into, in those debates. But there are hundreds of pages in our reports in favor of right of demonstration, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of association, freedom of uh, vote, that, that yes, but not any single argument in favor of independence. That's not our matter. But what happens is that those that don't accept any even single approach to those human rights, they try to confuse, saying that everybody is pro-independence. Thank you for that. Now, uh, as well as being the Catalan ombudsman, you've had a, a big role in the leadership of the International Ombudsman Institute since 2006, and you're currently the, the chair of the European board of that institute. It's been a turbulent time in Europe for and outside Europe for the independence of national ombudsmen. Are there any issues about independence since 2006 that stand out for you that you remember that you've had to fight for or stand up for? Look, uh, the first day I took office in Parliament, at that time the European Commissioner for Human Rights that was present in the ceremony told me, Rafael, if at the end of your mandate you have no enemies, you did it very wrong. And uh, I can uh, confirm you that the best way to get enemies is when you really stick to independent approach to any problem. And I am worried that in the International Ombudsman Organization, sometimes we don't value uh, in a deep way this uh, matter. For example, we should protect all those ombudsmen that are under threat, as I did going in front of an international delegation to protect the Polish ombudsman when the Kaczynski government tried to suppress his institution. And also, I would argue about how sometimes in international organization we do accept uh, some members that maybe they don't fulfill exactly what is needed to be a real ombudsman. I would advise to take care of them, to help them, to teach them, to uh, mean to approach them, but to maintain independence as a very important value in our efforts. We cannot uh, pretend to be uh, ombudsmen as defenders if we can be pressed and we can be uh, lean in one direction when the power knocks in our door. Okay, let me just ask you a quick supplementary about that. Are there any circumstances in which the ombudsman of a country could be so beyond 
the principle of independence that they should not be validated as a member of the IOI? The IOI has, uh, in the bylaws, some definitions on that. We did a big change years ago when the bylaws were saying we can accept all those that fulfill those requirements, but we changed it to say we can admit members if they can follow those principles. That allows us to be more loose. I still don't have enough information and enough periods of time to say who was right, but I was one of those that I was saying, why don't we maintain the human rights fulfillments and trying to help those that they cannot get it to get it in the future? Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But as a lot of people know, you were seriously ill with the coronavirus, which struck you in, in March, I think. And it's good to see you now recovering, but it must have been an awful experience. Um, what, what was it like? Uh, it was the last, uh, the, the, the worst two weeks of my life in terms of personal health, but I think that's not important because uh, first I can uh, talk with you in a very normal way. And second, because after one month of uh, locking down, as ombudsman, I could uh, take again my duties visiting uh, facilities like jails, like prisons, like uh, hospitals, like uh, social uh, services, etc. Then I forgot about those two weeks. That's very generous of you. I mean, presumably, I've heard from a number of European colleagues that prisons are particularly vulnerable to coronavirus. Is that the experience in, in Barcelona? It depends of how the authorities deal with that. I think that the proposal that came from the uh, European Commission of Human Rights, Ms. Mijatovic, and also from Bachelet, the UN commissioner, to say send uh, inmates to their homes during coronavirus uh, in order to prevent the extension in a closed place as a, a prison uh, was a very good uh, recommendation. Uh, in Catalonia, where we have the power, the competence on, on jails, and that was followed in general terms, except for the political prisoners of the Catalan movement. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, explainable a little bit about what I was trying to say uh, few questions ago about those harsh sentences. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this conversation and you're coming towards the end of your term as Ombudsman, although it may never end if the Catalan Parliament fails to elect a successor. I mean, you could be there for a long time yet. What do you think the impact of the Venice principles of the Council of Europe will have on the world of the Ombuds? That's a very, very important tool. I can say with honor that I started the process of approaching IOI to the Venice Commission when, uh, as a European chair, I got the, the signature of a memorandum of understanding with the Venice Commission around 2010-2011. Then we pushed them and the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe to write down a report on strengthening the Ombudsman. And then we pushed them with other members of IOI 
to write down those principles, like the Paris principles, that could be for the future a very strong reference for all of us and to not only to protect us from any maneuver to suppress our institutions, but also to make powers to respect much more our works. I would say to all the ombudsmen to have very close to them the Venice principles and to use them in their work. Uh, I appeared before the portfolio committee of the, uh, the House of Commons last week, and I mentioned the Venice principles as being a key benchmarking tool for ombudsmen, particularly in the United Kingdom, who who are short of many of the powers set out as minimum by the Venice principles. So it's a very key document for us, and thank you for your part in, in drafting it. Now, you recently invited me and colleague in Belgium to take part in a peer review of your office. I mean, that hasn't yet been published, but just in general terms, how valuable do you think peer review of that kind is to ombudsman organizations? I think it's a very, very uh, positive way of improving the quality of your institution. Uh, what you did, and the Belgian ombudsman and yourself, and I thank you very much, is helping us to improve uh, the outcome of our work, to be much more open to our citizens, to put more means even in uh, savings periods, to take care of in a deeper way or some matters that they may, maybe we are not uh, dealing them with uh, sufficient means like health systems or like persons care. I think a peer can teach you a lot as you did. And even that we are starting to apply what you recommend us, I can already say that we are seeing the first results. Okay. So last question. You've had a, a long and distinguished career. I have a lot of people who work with me who are young graduates, fresh out of university. What advice would you give to them about joining the ombudsman profession? There is a very, very first important thing, listening, listening, listening. I mean, listen, citizens, with his or her problem. Put yourself on his own scheme and then study the problem. And then don't be a kind of mailman. Don't be a person only sending to the administration the problem. You must be the person and the institution to solve the problem, even beyond the law, in the frontier of the human rights. Human rights were always conquered beyond the law. And that's a big advantage of ombudsman, that you must take care of the law, but maybe in each case, you can see a little bit farther the law, how uh, applying exactly the law could be unfair, try to propose another type of approach to the problem. But I repeat, starting with listening, with a passion for justice, fighting what is unfair. And that has always a reference, human rights, not as a paper, human rights as a reality, as a fact, as a deed. Thank you, Rafael. There's so much to take from this uh, interview. 
listening, listening, listening. That's one thing. Having a passion for justice. I mean, it's so obvious listening to you that you have that passion and you've demonstrated it. The thing I'll most take away from today is your comment that if you have no enemies, you did it wrong. And I think uh, a lot of us can learn from the bravery required uh, to do that, which you've shown. And we're all very grateful to you. So thank you very much for being our special guest. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I would underline that the UK Ombudsman is also teaching a lot to the Catalan Ombudsman. Okay, well, thank you, Rafael Rebo, for being our special guest. Thanks to our listeners around the world for joining in today. Take care under lockdown and stay safe. Thank you for listening to Radio Ombudsman. We would love to know what you think, so please leave a review or comment. If you like what you hear, please share and subscribe to future episodes.